Hello and welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Christian Lewis and Jeremy Sartori. And today, we're breaking down Losing My Edge, a song you just heard a snippet from, and uh, a song that if you uh, are a hipster or have been in uh, proximity to one over the past uh, 15 years or so, you probably may have heard, incidentally or otherwise, but uh, we were going to do a deep dive. LCD Sound System, uh, one of our absolute favorite bands here, and you know, Losing My Edge, one of our absolute favorite songs by one of our favorite bands, is a very, very dense um, exploration of uh, musical influences that, that led uh, James Murphy to uh, put together LCD Sound System. And I'm, let me kick it over to Christian for a little bit of history. Yeah, thanks, Wyndham. Um, Losing My Edge was LCD's first single uh, and actually appeared on the eponymous debut in 2005. Um, as, a, as a mission statement, and we've, we've talked about this in the context, I think, of, of you know, the sort of the track one, side one um, of an album, you know, what's, what's your opening salvo to the world? Um, this couldn't be a, 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 clearer, a clearer sign, I think, in some ways, that, you know, this is a, a band that's sort of um, constantly grappling with its own, uh, with, with, all of, with all of its sort of motley influences um, and, and sort of trying to uh, weave them together and, and come up with something, you know, a, a sum that's, there, a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. Um, the concept of the song is, is really, you know, James, James Murphy is speaking from the perspective of, you know, a, an aging hipster who, who tries to reassert street cred by boasting about his involvement in several pivotal moments in music history. And, you know, Murphy's incredible sort of capacity for, for deadpan sing-speak um, is sort of perfectly towing the line between, uh, between his ego, you know, and, and knowledge of, of um, incredible depth of knowledge about um, such sort of esoteric moments in music history, but also his insecurity about the fact that that's, uh, that's fundamentally um, transient uh, and it's, it's impermanent. Um, so with that in mind, I think, you know, we're, we're really going to break down every single one of these references because, uh, you know, partly it's our, I, think, I guess, our own um, sort of obsessive uh, inclination to do so. Um, but, you know, also because this song does speak to, speak to us and, and sort of the concept for, for this podcast, I think, in a, in a much more personal way. Don't you think, Wyndham? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Brother, Brother, Brother is built, uh, you know, in... Uh, sort of incidentally uh, or coincidentally with this song. It really, you know, this sort of is the conversation we've been having since we started having this conversation, since we all met each other uh, for the first time 11 years ago. It is that combination of, you know, my aging out of the point where I'm discovering new things. I grew up as a, as a you know, sort of, you know, uh, musical art, you know, sort of uh, detective. I was looking for new stuff all the time and then, you know, sort of force feeding it down to my brothers who are 10 and 20 years younger than I am. And then hitting that point in adulthood when you realize that, you know, you've, you're on the wrong side, you know, potentially of that discovery line and that, you know, it's the, the discoveries are coming from my younger brothers now and I am justifying, uh, you know, my, my perch at the top of this ladder by saying, yeah, well, you know, that was me 20 years ago. And, and I 
I, I found this. Yeah, and yeah. truly is. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> and, a lot you know, of it, it sounds it, like Wyndham and I uh, talking to Christian on this pod, <laughs> which is, uh, yeah. <laughs> we remember. But well, it, 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 I mean, and even, even before, I mean, this is, again, for those, for those who, uh, who, who aren't as familiar with the song, I mean, you know, it's uh, it, before any of the musical references started, before he starts, you know, sort of pinpointing all these different things that, he, that he's, um, he's been to. And True a and facetiously, of. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, he, uh, you know, he begins by saying, "Yeah, he's, he's losing his edge. The kids are coming up from behind. Um, you know, the the cooler, younger generation." And and of course, for James Murphy himself, a guy who was in his mid thirties or was you know into his thirties by the time his music career took off. I mean, he'd played drums in a couple of punk bands, but like wasn't. I mean, you know, maybe he, I think he, he struggled very openly and very um, sort of transparently with uh, with this notion that maybe he was just going to get too old and it was never going to happen. Um, well, and, yet I mean, he, and, he, and that, you know, speaks to the fact that this was the first single he's ever put out in, under this particular band and under his own real moniker. You know, this is you know, he's starting at the point where most people end up, which is shit, maybe I'm too old for this. And this is the first thing he puts out. So. I, yeah, no, that's right. Like this, I mean, you know, it's uh, what the, the strokes had, you know, had, had had their moment by the time they were 25 and, you know, Murphy's 32, 33. And, and, you know, there is something that's just brutally fucking honest about this. And it's kind of great. I mean, that really, I, I think that that, like the honesty that comes through in this and then the sort of like, you know, I, I always, I, feel like when you talk about LCD sound system, there is just sort of like this grain of humanity in it that like is really appealing, I think. Um, and, and I think that's part of the reason that, by the way, rock critics everywhere love, you know, love this guy mm-hmm. and feel like they identify yep. with him. You know, it's like everybody sort of feels like, um, you know, you, you hit your 30s. Maybe you could you could do that. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, there is a there's, there's that a, one it, last chance that we could make it. Yeah. And I, yeah, I exactly. think the best music in general in the music we talk about a lot on this pod does hit that chord. So the stuff that you really feel like, you know, could be you. And he channels that that perfectly. I mean, my first hearing of the song was actually from one of my my good friends who is is Wynn's age. So he's about eight, eight, nine years older than me. And, uh, you know, he was like, you have to hear this song and, and played it for me in his, in his apartment. And, you know, I think was feeling the same thing. I was think probably when you felt when you heard it, you know, how mm-hmm. creative and hilarious and also funny, true yeah. it was, and, but also how good it sounded, you know. And, and I was 28 at the time kind of, uh, you know, sort of hitting a, a peak where I was probably a little less adventurous, but still in that sort of scene of trying to go out and find new music and, and my life centered around music. So to, to listen to it today even means something different than it did then. I think it's, uh, it's an amazing song. You guys want to dive in? Let's do it. Yeah, let's talk. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, I just, I think to set up. Yeah, set the table by saying that there are, as, at my count, 61 uh, individual references uh, to musicians and, and scenes and, and events um, in the song. So we're going to walk you through them in the best way we figured out how. And so, Christian, you can, you can talk about the... Uh, sure. Um, so so as, the, as the chief scientist of the, the Brother 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 <laughs> podcast... And mathematician... Um, and mathematician, uh, and yeah, um, I, basically, you know, the, we, we started by sort of listing these out. Cr- I mean, chronologically, or or you know, as as they occur in the song, um, which is not necessarily exactly chronological, but um, you know, there's a, a, a it's it's relatively consistent, I should say. Um, that that said, 
you know, it's a little scattershot at times and doesn't necessarily, um, uh, it's not organized in a, in a particularly coherent way. So it would have just been a, a pretty, um, a pretty long list of us, uh, of, of us sort of, you know, unpacking these references for, for folks who are listening. Um, I think what was interesting though, was that as we, as we got into this research, um, it, it's sort of the, uh, I think the, the, the skeleton or, or the the architecture of, of the song actually just sort of revealed itself, which is that you know there are actually um, there is a sort of logic to this, and there are these sort of buckets of, of influences that um, have clearly you know provided him with with the context for his own um, sort of musical growth and, and development. Um, and some of this shit is really esoteric and like difficult to dig up, um, you know. And and to one point, you said sixty one references. Uh, I think by my count, it was actually sixty three because two of the things that he mentions are uh, doubles, right? Well, um, you, you're the chief mathematician. I will, uh, I'll stick to being the only okay. guy that learned to spell without spell check. So there, there you go. You go. Um, yeah. Uh, but I mean, so I think what we've, what we've done is basically break this into um, a few different categories and, you know, it's, it's, they're not perfect and we're not going to pretend that they are. Um, but you know, the, the first thing that we'll talk about, and I guess what we'll talk about in this first of, of, uh, of these, couple episodes here um is is going to be the uh the scenes so um that's you know time and place and and um uh the sort of atmospherics which which do come up front in the song um and then i think from there we'll we'll pick out you know the guys who who i've um uh, described as the rock kids. Um, these are not to be confused with a couple of other types of rock kids that we'll talk about in subsequent podcasts. So <laughs> the proto-punks, um, for anybody who's still paying attention, uh, will be a separate category that we can discuss, I think, next time. And then uh, we've got, like, kraut rockers and Berliners um, because, you know, Murphy really does uh, pay homage to... Um, uh, to you know the the German um, techno uh, scene from I mean seventies on really um, so uh, plenty of good references there and then of course we have like the punks and art punks um, back to America and, and Britain for the most part um, and uh, I think then we've got new wave in, in what will probably be uh, a, a later episode and then I think in addition to that we've got um, the real just sort of electronic musicians uh, which is actually probably where I think you guys would agree I, I certainly felt like I was stepping the furthest outside of my mm-hmm. yeah, uh, was... traditional uh, frame of reference so if I so yeah exactly if I if I sound like an idiot when I'm talking about you know DJs and, and uh, 1980s electronic musicians um, there's a good reason for it uh, but anyway I think tweet, that's sort tweet of the Christian's general I love it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hashtag uh, no, but the um, so yeah. I think uh, with that, do you guys want to do you guys want to tip it off? Yeah. And we will start, as I said, with we're going to start with the scene. The scene. Detroit. Yeah, there we go. Detroit Rock City. In this case, Detroit uh, Techno City. So uh, you know, one of the scenes that or one of the first kind of scenes. It's referenced actually as an individual, but then also. Um, as a scene is that, that Detroit Techno, which is uh, Juan Atkins, is the person that's referenced in the song who was part of a pretty famous techno trio called the Bellevue Three. 
And these guys, you know, and again, I think to Christian's earlier point, like, you know, I've dipped my toe in dance music a, a few times in my life. Um, <clears throat> never been very good at dancing. So always like to watch from the sidelines. But anybody who listens to any sort of underground dance music or even dance music today, the sort of foundations were the Chicago house scene and, and then the Detroit techno scene, huge in Europe. And then, you know, obviously big here in the underground and, and a huge influence for, for LCD. So for those who don't know, Juan Atkins, part of the Bellevue 3, also went by Model 500. Um, the big, the big uh, you know, techno single that he was known for, too, were No UFOs and Techno City. And just one great quote from these guys before we move on to the next scene would be, uh, you know, them, I think it was Juan Atkins that said he was sort of like talking about how this was a complete accident. And uh, he, these guys were into just weird music, so anything from Prince to George Clinton to B-52s to Depeche Mode. And his description of techno was, imagine George Clinton and Kraftwerk being stuck in an elevator with nothing but a sequencer to keep them company. And, uh, and that's basically how the birth of techno, uh, as we know it today, was... Uh, and- this is a pretty spare, uh, like a spare, you know, style of techno. Is that right? Yeah, or? it's it's really like it's kind of you know, I mean, it's coming around Mechanical, the same time where like, like a- early '80s and, and late '70s, really, where synthesizers are just being kind of used in, in, in you know, in, in sequencers. So you have a lot of really kind of that, that's why they talked about like no UFOs was supposed to sound like UFOs landing on the Earth. I mean, it's 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 a lot of like weird sounds and then you know pretty sparse drum beats and, and things like that. Where the the Chicago house scene was very much driven by you know bass and snare, kind of the kicking drum. The techno scene was a little more out there and a little more sort of surreal. And yeah, I also it well, just wanted I mean, to, again not be an expert on techno. I just no, wanted no, to add I mean, to the. the Oh, go ahead. Just, just quickly, yeah. I mean, on the style point, I mean, I think the one thing that, and it's evident, you know, in, in lots of LCD's music, which is, which is sort of, I guess, you know, but, but it sort of lacks some of the warmth that, like, you know, subsequent like house music with vocals did in the '90s or whatever. It's got, like, it is very much, you know, it's, it's computer music, space music, um, or, and it sounds like it. Yeah, exactly. So, and I, I just wanted you, to add the, uh, you know, in response to Jerry saying that he, he doesn't dance well. Um, this is, uh, this was a very, uh, drug driven scene too. So, uh, and I believe that that is a truism that everybody can dance on drugs. So, uh, well, speaking is- of drug driven scenes, Wyndham, <laughs> yes. um, I believe you were about to talk about CBGBs. I was, well, that was, you know, this is the benefit of being able to, to learning to spell before spell check. Um, CBGB, uh, <laughs> is a sort of, you know, I obviously iconic club. Um, but what it is when you talk about CBGBs, you're not talking about CBGBs, uh, the, cl- I mean, you are talking about CBGBs, the club, but you're talking about CBGBs, the club within this very, you know, brief, uh, period when there was an incredible creative output with, you know, the dead boys, talking heads, Blondie, the Ramones, um, uh, television coming out of one, Scene and um, you know bands that didn't necessarily um, aesthetically uh, run together. I mean, and certainly different uh, levels of ambition and success. But it was there from whence it emanated. A, a band, I mean, a, a club called uh, a Shortening of Country Bluegrass, Bluegrass and Blues, uh, owned by Hilly Crystal on the Lower East Side, uh, down in the Bowery. And you know, it was an, uh, an accidental. Um, again, one of those scenes that had you tried to replicate it, you would never have done it. But obviously a huge influence um, with all these bands coming out. Again, I was there. I did used to hang out at CBGB's, but well after the, the very cool quotient had, had kind of evaporated from the place. Um, 
circa 1982. And, but it was uh, sort of famously sucky, right? Like, I mean, it wasn't yeah, a good place. Oh, no, it was like, a it terrible place. Good, yeah. It was it was an it was, awesome place, and it was, you know, I remember walking in there probably the first time in my life at about 16, uh, so that would be mid-'80s, and um, just thinking, like, this is the mecca, this is the place I've heard about, and yeah. then walking in and being like, this is a shithole. This place stinks. Um, <laughs> with famously the the worst bathroom in the history of, of nightclub bathrooms. Um, you know, we could, we could probably do a whole episode on, on shitty nightclub bathrooms that we have uh, used, and... Um, this would rank uh, very high among them uh, with its uh, having to tiptoed into yeah. around various. I mean, like, having to cross the stage essentially to get to the bathroom, which is downstairs, <laughs> and the bathroom I don't remember ever really fully being functional. So anyway, enough about the CBGB's bathroom. The reference point here is CBGB's late, you know, mid to late seventies when a. Uh, an incredible scene evolved. Um, some of the, actually, some of you know America's greatest bands. I would say, you know, I would rank Blondie, The Ramones, um, Talking, Talking Heads, Heads, and Television uh, within that, uh, you know, uh, you know, top thirty bands of all time that ever came from this country. So, moving on. Um, and, uh, yeah, just that it was sort of the counterpoint. It was the slightly punkier counterpoint to Max's Kansas City, maybe, which was, um, you know, also a massive staple of the scene at that time. But it was like, this really was... What, he a, really, it, was a, it was an evolutionary process, though. Max's yeah. was a little earlier. Its, it's right. heyday was a little that, earlier and a little bit more celeb conscious. This was really stripped down, and, and uh, nobody expected anybody to really get the, famous out of this joint. The kids who were a little bit too young to... Or a little bit, you know, maybe not quite cool enough quite yet to, to get into Max's, but we're, you know, would have otherwise uh, a couple of years down the road sort of ended up, you know, going a little bit further downtown into something that was a little less. Um, I mean, that's that's my, you know, interpretation anyway. But um, but certainly, it, it yeah, I mean, it was a uh, it was the locus of I mean, the dawn of, of punk, right? Yeah. So, yeah. The aesthetic, so the aesthetic we all know and love. It's important. So next to, yeah, make, to making sound clashes. Yeah, Jerry, this wanna... is one that you know I, I actually was kind of unaware of, and uh, you know, obviously, Jamaican music in general has a huge influence, especially dub and some of the uh, you know '60s stuff that we all know, and 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 kind of in, infiltrates dance music and then just sort of popular music in general. But this is a pretty insane th- deal that was going on in the '50s and '60s, where different neighborhoods, different gangs would literally you know, build up the loudest sound systems they possibly could, tying all sorts of speakers together and, and pickup trucks and, and basically having a noise battle. Like who could who could you know who could bring out the the loudest sort of chest pounding bass and rhythm, which obviously went on to influence the dub scene and, and lots of the reggae and dance hall scenes. But you know, if you guys have, have learned more about this scene in other ways, let me know. It was pretty pretty new to me and, and sounded really cool. Yeah, I actually think I read about this last year in um, A Brief History of Seven Killings, which was the Man Booker Prize winner Great about book. the yeah, about the assassination attempt on, on Bob Marley. And aside from that book being written in about, you know, eight different styles of, of patois. Know, Jamaican patois, <laughs> yeah, which was like, I mean, it makes it one of the most challenging reads, but also really rewarding. Um, I mean, it was it was nuts. But, but the cool thing that I took away from that was, you know, this was actually also the, uh, it was the way that, you know, DJs would test drive their, their latest singles and their, their latest music. So basically, if you could elicit a big reaction or a cool reaction from a crowd in a party, parking lot somewhere, um, 
you would uh, you know you would know that that was going to be your next jam, um, and so you would you would run with that, and you would actually take that to the studio and press it rather than uh, rather than something else. But I, I guess we have what like sixty one things left. Something so, like that. Yeah, I'll <laughs> shut the hell up and we can get back on track. Yeah. What's next? So we've Ibiza. got Ibiza. Yeah. Say it with Ibiza. me, Ibiza. Um, yeah. So I, I feel a little silly for not having been in Ibiza. Um, I was should have been on my radar. It wasn't. I was actually in London a fair amount in the late '80s, early you know early '90s when the you know this culture sort of erupted. This DJ culture, rave culture, kind of erupted, and I did attend uh, some good parties in England. But what would happen was come. Holiday time, the uh, and I think uh, f- following the leadership of Paul Oakenfold and and uh, Andy Weatherall and people like that, um, the DJs from the hottest clubs in in London, places like the Fridge and and uh, you know these dance clubs in Brixton would go down to Ibiza and they would have these massive sort of uh, communal drug and dance all night you know long parties and it is. Um, it sounded great, and I'm really bummed that I wasn't there. So I wasn't there. And um, it is, you know, it, it, but the Ibiza thing is it's almost, um, you know, it's a reference to really the construct of the thing, which is, like I said, sort of uh, super electric, um, plugged in, drugged out, uh, all-night dance parties on the beach in the Costa del Sol and. <coughs> Spain, so um, and, uh, you know you can't. And, and the the silliness of your pronunciation of it, <laughs> I, because it's actually the authenticity. The, I should say it's the way it should be pronounced. I, it's real. hard not to say it that way, um, but it is. Uh, it to this day, I mean, it's it's you know ratcheted up into sort of Vegas uh, level um, style silliness with you know with the likes of David Guetta and Skrillex and uh, you know that crowd, but uh, Diplo and such. But it is, um, it is, is still in existence. Is there there other than nightclub? Like, I mean, that's like, I, you know. I've, yeah, I've I, think, I think there's actually some ecstasy yeah, okay. dealers as well, if you're. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> right, got it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. No, but they're, they're, you know, it's a, it's a beach resort. I mean, our, you know, our family, Uncle John and uh, his kids used to go, um, you know, down to Mallorca, <laughs> Ibiza. You know, it's, 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 it's basically Brits on holiday. and, and Black socks you know, and Speedos, baby. Somebody, yeah, truly man purses and Mickey well, Mouse t-shirts. Culture, the party culture hasn't completely disappeared for, for anybody who saw the viral video um, on that uh, hit the web last week of um, one passenger on a, on a Ryanair flight mounting another passenger on a oh, Ryanair yeah. flight on the way out there. Um, so I, I guess the party is, uh, is still going yes. um, 25 years later. <laughs> yes. No humping, please. Um, yes. So Paradise Garage, Larry Levan, and Peach Boy is Christian. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think Paradise Garage is really remembered as the first nightclub to, to sort of emphasize, I think, the music scene more than the social context. Um, and I, really, this is in contrast to the infamous sort of Studio 54, among others, where people really went to be seen. And Larry Levin was, um, you know, he basically took up Saturday residency uh, for, for about a decade in there from 77 to 87. Um, and, you know, these nights became so sort of legendary that they were referred to as, as Saturday Mass. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he was a, a brilliant um, a, a brilliant DJ, and, and really uh, he and engineer Richard Long supervised the construction of, you know, what they were 
what they certainly said was the greatest sound system that had ever been built um, and sort of labored extensively, I think, every night to, to perfect the settings um, ahead, of, uh, ahead of specific sets. And, I mean, the level of sort of... Um, uh, intense focus required to do that and you know the fact that anybody would would bother when you know you could go down the street and um, uh, you know as I say it was about it was about the drugs the parties and, and who was there um, but I think you know from James Murphy's perspective um, as a, a true sort of uh, uh, audiophile. sonic yeah audiophile and just sonic obsessive in the studio um, you know he has a ton of respect for these guys um, and, uh, you know, I, I think um, one of the cool features of, of Larry Levin's sets was, was really that, you know, during the night he would actually upgrade the quality of his musical selections and he would upgrade the quality of his turntable needles he was using newer and newer ones um, until the music mixer and the dancers were all hitting their peaks simultaneously. Um, you know, I think at a, at a certain point in the roll of the evening, if you will, um, and uh, and then finally the, uh, the 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 Peach Boys. This is kind of a funny. This is another thing that sort of underscores the tongue in cheek quality of this song because you know, don't get me wrong. The first 150 times I heard this, I definitely thought it was the Beach Boys. Um, but then, of course, when you think about it in context, that doesn't really make any sense. What in the hell would the Beach Boys have to do with Larry Levin and Paradise Garage? Um, and the Peach Boys, P is in uh, Peru, is uh, you know definitely supposed to sound like that but um you know i think his, his point is that any hipster would obviously ask for a clarification here um anybody who really knows what they're talking about um but uh but basically they wrote a mega club hit don't make me wait um with uh, levin's help it became one of the sort of major staples of his dj sets um and it's uh it is sort of it is a more important song, um, you know, in historical context too, just because it was it was one of the first times that a DJ was actually making music um, and and sort of consulting in the in the creative process rather than just uh, playing it or or you know putting it in order if that playing makes sense. Playing other people's so, records. Yeah, exactly. Um, making music so, out of music. Exactly, um, and this was you know I think uh, for for a guy like Murphy who you know sees himself I think or is constantly asking himself the question am I you know, is this original? Is this all the sum of influences? Um, you know, I think that's a, it's a very fitting, uh, fitting reference and starting place um, for, for this song. So uh, should we take a break real quick? Yeah, and, let's take a um, quick break and we'll come back. We'll come back and we'll talk about the, the rock, rock kids, kids. The garage bands. Those damn rock awesome. kids.
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with Jeremy and Christian. It's a true Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, and today we're talking about losing my edge. Uh, the comprehensive uh, original single by LCD Sound System, and uh, with LCD poised to release a record uh, in the very near future, uh, um, their first in seven years, uh, we thought we'd revisit the thing that, that got it all started, and that is losing my edge. And the, uh, the second grouping we're going to jump into is the Rock Kids, Garage Bands. Christian. There we go. Um, so as we, as we move through the taxonomy of this, uh, of this you know, um, and dissecting all of the references here, um, you know, we mentioned, yeah, we're going to the Rock Kids. Garage Bands are the first group up. Um, you know, there's a special place in my heart for Garage Bands. I think that's sort of like, uh, that's sort of the, the place I, you know, feel, feel the most connected. Um, and yet I had heard of uh, probably about half of these um, before uh, before I started digging into the research. So the Outsiders um, are the first ones we're going to kick off with, and they are a uh, Cleveland band with actually just two big hits. Um, you know, Time Won't Let Me and, and Respectable, and a history that was mostly confined to AM radio. They were uh, they were a '60s band. Um, I you know I think a lot of people wouldn't have heard them um, precisely because they had pretty crappy luck. Uh, they had. You know, a radio hit briefly in, in a song called Help Me Girl as well, but basically got upstaged very shortly thereafter by a better version um, that was done by the Animals. And uh, I got to say, though, they may have made one of the worst decisions um, in, in rock music when they turned down um, the opportunity uh, that the record label gave them to record Bend Me, Shape Me, um, which became a mega hit uh, after that. But um, that, that should sort of put them in context yeah, for you. Yeah, time, time Will Let Me was, I mean, I remember that, you know, as being on classic rock and, and oldies stations and, you know, the regular terrestrial radio growing up. So that was, I mean, that was a big enough hit that that was well within my consciousness. It wasn't something that I had to find later on. It was something I remember from being a kid. So it's, um, you know, they got, they, they reached a level of, uh, you know, notoriety that was, you know, a one hit ish kind of band. Um, but yeah, that sounded like they could have been way bigger and weren't, Unlike a lot of those guys, you don't know who it is. You, like, you know the song, yeah. or at least I do, but then, then you're like, oh, that's who sang that. Yeah, exactly. It's, I think the, the band, I mean, it, well, it was also an era of singles rock, right? So, yeah. I mean, it was like... It, it was, was, mur- you know, it the, was forging into the album era, but yeah, it was still around but, the turnstone, turning stone. And of which there is a there is a lost generation of bands that you know um, cranked out radio hits and, yeah. and sort of can find their, most of them their, on their identities have been on lost nuggets. on nuggets. Yeah. yeah, I was just gonna say yeah. it was the, the great compilation. Really yeah, that was that is an, an amazing compilation. Patty's, that was the and pa- actually Patty I think Smith's it comes guitarist. up later, doesn't it? It may. Does he mention the, nuggets in this or? Is that my imagination? Well, anyway, we'll keep or, going. Or are we doing our own impromptu, <laughs> like improvised version of this right now, where we're now starting to drop references uh, unintentionally? But um, so anyway, next up was uh, yeah. So we're going to stay in the stay in the Midwest here in, in Michigan, and uh, Index definitely did not have a hit, <laughs> nor was ever played on AM radio. Um, they only the actually Index. Yeah, exactly. Well, they. They were 1967 Detroit uh, band that formed in, at the University of Detroit and, and really only pressed 100 pressings of, the, of their album. A band, again, like I think Christian kind of mentioned in the, in the last segment, 
I'd never heard of these guys. It was cool to kind of look them up and, and check them out because they definitely fall in line with sort of that Stooges, MC5 yeah. world of Detroit. I mean, this is a noisy, reverb, you know, uh, heavy, psychedelic rock band that did not sound like anything else in 1967. And, no, um, you know... The year of Sgt. Pepper. Yeah, yeah no. exactly. <laughs> and, you know, definitely, I mean, I think I always love, you know, I've done it so much in my life, you know, kind of throwing out... Throwing out you can actually hear Index on YouTube. That's where I've, I've listened to the album. Don't know if it's that easy to find anywhere else other than the internet. But, like, um, you know, I'm so guilty of, of throwing a reference like this, especially in my my music prime. Like, oh, you haven't heard of Index? Well, you know, if you, if you like the Stooges, you might like Index. You know, that kind <laughs> of comment. So it was pretty cool. And uh, they're definitely uh, loud and dirty. YouTube, like became huge in 2006 a year after this album came out so i don't know how the hell you would have heard them in, yeah uh, right. 2005 <laughs> you're like, definitely you crate digging and uh finding <laughs> some serious uh you had a serious older friend who had a you know had cool cred yeah all right so christian back sure. to you i believe oh yeah um well so uh next up is scientists um and this is you know king Salmon's uh, 1970s Australian band that prefigured grunge, um, you know, much earlier, I think, than, than American bands like Mud Honey or, or you know, um, uh, John Spencer's Blues Explosion or, or anything like that. Um, I mean, you know, they're a pretty well-known, uh, well-known group. Um, we Had Love is, uh, is a, you know, huge song and has that sort of anthemic, you know, chomping uh, guitar riff. So um, I think people will be kind of familiar with this, but they were definitely out there sort of on an island, um, both figuratively and, I guess, literally, um, you know, and uh, sort of distant from the American scene, but, but definitely, uh, definitely big contributors in, in, you know, the world of, of rock and, uh, and, you know, grunge development. Yeah. And next up is the monks, and, and I'll preface this by saying that you know I do remember friends of mine uh, looking for this album. It was it was something of a uh, uh, holy uh, holy grail for collectors, but it was also one of those things that may or may not have been mythical, as far as I knew when I was in high school. Um, I had a friend who was obsessed with the monks, and um, in the same way he was obsessed with the seeds and and uh, a number of other psychedelic rock bands that, you know, weren't uh, hugely popular, but, uh, you know, things like the uh, creation of um, Mark IV, but um, the... The the monks... Sorry. Hang on, there are two versions of this, though. This is one of the, uh, this is one of the references where there are actually two, and this is right next to um, the the reference to... uh, Niagara, um, which is kind of funny because he ends he ends one of these stanzas with and you're talking about and when I'm just to clarify you're talking about the I'm talking um, about the, the American band, band formed American in Germany GIs. yeah okay that that actually cut monk haircuts into their hair yeah. and had one song that was impossible to find until lo and behold a couple of months ago it showed up in a fucking advertisement and I'm like oh my god I haven't heard this song since oh, high school really? which ad yeah, is that I can't I, it was it an Apple ad oh, wow. you know very probably because Apple's been really you know I mean uh, you know like iPhone ads and stuff have tendency to resurrect long forgotten um, you know songs cheap to that, license yeah well yeah and also <laughs> just you know there's a there's definitely a badge of honor I mean they certainly are in the James Murphy school of, of you know great diggers and and uh, but yeah this was a this is a song I'd heard and when I heard it on an ad I was like my god this is a this is a Mikey Little song from uh, you know that's awesome uh, 
Yeah, so it's kind of cool. Actually, uh, I mean, on a side note, we don't certainly don't need more references in this, but uh, there's an Apple ad right now that features William. Um, I have a tough time with his last name. Oni Bear, I believe it is Onye Bear. Um, that's also you know really cool um, late seventies Nigerian musician. Um, but again, I don't need to add refer- reference points His, to this discussion. Yeah, exactly. That that was not. The, um, but that he'll. Um, we'll we'll pick we'll pick up that thread I think in another uh, another episode. But only to say that the monks were also an English punk band formed in the late seventies. So I mean I, I think that the the idea that Murphy again is like he's this narrator who is. Deliberately, um, you know, throwing up smoke screens and trying to fuck with hipsters, um, and that it's you know it's our responsibility, um, really, to to you know dig deeper and, and figure out what he's talking about, or or at least ask the question. Um, and then uh, we had, I guess, one more in the Garage Band. Really, was the creation, right? Yeah, yeah and I don't think they're uh, uh, listed in in, in our um, you know our outline right here, but they are. Uh, certainly referenced in this in this uh, in the song, and um, you know I could never figure out from the album I had again from high school from my friend Mikey um, whether they were called uh, the Mark IV or the Creation, and apparently they were a band who changed their name, um, and so they were known as both for a short period of time in the same confusing way that like Par- Parliament Funkadelic might have been, uh, they might have changed labels and needed to, to change their name, but um, they had a couple songs. The song that we loved in high school was called Biff Bang Pow, um, which if you look it up uh, and listen to it, maybe we'll, we'll go out with that one, but um, it's a phenomenally, you know, it's a great uh, pop song, and you can't imagine how these guys were any less well-known than The Who or The Kinks at the time, and they were poised, I think, to be as big. Yeah. The uh, the song that people a lot of people know again because of uh, reusage, making time, kind of thing, making time, which is currently in another ad campaign, but it was also um, the beginning of Rushmore and the uh, and the um, you know the certainly the song that played over the trailer for Rushmore. Well, real quick Um, about these guys too is um, you know their guitar player Eddie Phillips actually was supposed to be in the Who, like Pete Townsend really courted that guy to be the rhythm guitar player for the who and he stuck with the creation and you know the creation obviously did not make it i think they had one sort of minor hit called painter man um definitely a cult classic garage band that that you know i I certainly was introduced to through rushmore and then dug into but um you know they're they're another band where the who went on obviously to, to rule the world and the creation kind of uh never quite got out of the shadow but an interesting fact is Apparently they're massive in Germany, much like our friend David Hasselhoff. <laughs> David Hasselhoff. Well, they yeah. also they also their bass player was in the Kinks, I believe afterward. But uh, the one thing so, I but, was going to well, say in, yeah, in, in the vein of this in this song is that um, I was there for uh, the creation. I was there and I told them release Biff Bang Pow or Making Time, and they went ahead with Painter Man, and that was the problem. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, okay. All right. Nice. Well, they should have listened. They should have listened. Um, all right, so should we uh, should we take a break and uh, we'll we'll throw on a tune by the creation and um, then come back and wrap up uh, this segment of um, of brother 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 and losing, losing my, my edge.
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are breaking down Losing My Edge, but we're going to end part one of this, and it could be, it looks as though this is going to be a three-parter. Um, so we're going to end part one the way we end every podcast, which is, uh, Jerry, what are you listening to? All right. Well, what I'm listening to right now is, uh, you know, I think a book we'll be doing a, a podcast on in the near future, which is uh, the, the Meet Me in the Bathroom is it Lizzie Goodman? Is that correct? Yep. Um, yep. By Lizzie Goodman. So far, totally in love with it. it it's uh, just taking me back. And what it's taking me back to are, are some of the albums that I, I started listening to the other day. So I went back and, and started jamming out on TV, on the radio, Jonathan Fire Eater, and uh, a lot of the early bands that are, that are mentioned in this book. Because you were there. I was there. Not quite in New York, but I was around there. Christian, what are you listening to? Uh, I am going to stick with, I guess, the literary theme here um, and say uh, that I am reading Shock and Awe by Simon Reynolds. Uh, Simon Reynolds, of course, features pretty prominently in Meet Me in the Bathroom, actually, as one, oh, yeah? of, the, one of the voices uh, interviewed. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the thing. It's all the bands you, you love, but also all the critics you've been reading the entire time that you've been listening to those bands. So it is, uh, it's actually, it's a, it's a pretty fun um, sort of collection of opinions. Uh, and then, you know, in addition to that, um, I would just, you know, casually point out that I'm going to see LCD Sound System again um, for, for the second time in two months, uh, I guess tomorrow um, or when, yeah, with, yeah, with you, uh, with you, Wyndham, this time. Um, Won't be as be good, only... but. No, I don't think, I, I think Jeremy doesn't think it's going to be as good. I actually think it might be better, but I'll well, be the only one who I think they've practiced by now, you know. <laughs> yeah, you guys are going to have um, a blast. It's going to be great. Jealous. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic. I'm psyched to see those guys again, and and psyched to to show off uh, Brooklyn Steel at new venue with uh, with you and them. So that'll be great. I'm very excited myself, and that was a hard fought battle. It was not easy to get tickets to that bitch. Um, anyway, I am going to. Uh, what have I been listening to? I've actually been listening to. Um, again, this is a cheat a little bit because, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the pod, uh, I'm getting, uh, embarrassingly, I'm being reminded of songs from my youth uh, through commercials. And uh, one of the best ones I've heard in quite a while and completely, uh, you know, forgot was uh, William Onyebor, um, Fantastic Man, which is featured right now on the Apple iTunes, the... Uh, the ad that takes place in the barbershop that they ran ad nauseum during the NBA playoffs. And uh, it is, uh, so I went back and listened to this. I mean, if you need a blueprint for uh, where the gorillas came from, from, you know, what Damon Albarn must have, you know, hit his eureka moment when he was researching, starting a, a second band, um, it is William Onyebor. Uh, and his the albums are you know the the records are amazing. Uh, '70s Nigerian funk musician um, had a you know couple of hits with Atomic Bomb and uh, Fantastic Man, and uh, then you they, just listen to the the compilations that are put together, and you're like, wow, this is so freaking far ahead of its time, and so. Uh, forward-looking, and you know, to the to this day, I mean, when you see that ad, you're like, you think it's a new, a new song. It has, it still has the sort of production value that makes it sound like it came out this week. I just, I would just reference that there's actually a great in January this year, um, and I, I really was unfamiliar with him, but in January, uh, Mark Hogan over Pitchfork wrote a, a pretty, uh, pretty great piece about him. Was a no bit because he died actually this year in January. Yeah, um, I uh, I think it was 
I guess it, I guess it was, yeah. Um, but I, I didn't pick up when he, when he'd actually passed away. But it was just, I mean, it was a great sort of, uh, great sort of insight into his, um, uh, into his legacy and yeah. how great his music was. So. And I, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go ahead and, and jump to the next uh, segment. Um, just mentioning that, uh, you know, he's on these uh, new, the, you know, the compilations are being released by Luakabop, which is um, David Byrne's label, and um, they're very, very much worth checking out. And as, as a, um, you know, as a tribute to um, my uh, reacquaintance with this man, I'm going to put uh, Fantastic Man on our. 100 million top 10 songs of all time list this week. Awesome. What are you gonna put? What are you gonna put on, Jer? Yeah. So I mean, aside from wanting to ask you if Apple is gonna start paying some advertising fees for the amount of times <laughs> you mention them on this pod, yeah. I am uh, <laughs> I am going over to uh, I should say down to the dirty south and uh, one of my uh, all time favorite hip hop bands and I think the the group that really kind of put the Dirty South on the map, Outcast, And uh, I was listening to Equemini uh, this weekend, just a bunch. And I just, it's, it's the album that I think kind of gets under, uh, underappreciated because it was right before they, they hit the masses. It was after Atlians, which is kind of the underground, you know, cult favorite. Um, and before um, the, uh, what was Stankonia. the Stankonia. Yeah, Stankonia. Yeah, it was right before Stankonia. Yeah, which was, you know, sort of launched them into the mainstream success. But, my favorite album is definitely Equipment. I, I think start to finish, it, it, it has that sound that they're just so good at, that, that just funk, soul, south, great delivery. And the song I'm going to put on is going to be The Odd of Storytelling, part one. Nice. I dig that, Tim. Was not expecting um, that one today. Christian, what are you listening to? I mean, what are you going to throw on the uh, 10 trillion uh, top 10 songs of all time? Praise You by Fatboy Slim. Nice. nice. I love yeah. it. <laughs> Boom. Just declarative. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what, what the hell else do you need to say? I, like, you hear the opening notes in that song, and it's just like, oh, I'm delighted that I'm going to listen to the, you know, it's like, this is going to be a great five minutes. That's great. I, um, and I think it, it dovetails well with the, uh, you know, with the chat about LCD and, and the whole notion of uh, the genre mashup that, uh, you know, uh, has come that I believe LCD has kind of come to perfect. So let's uh, let's say goodbye for now, and we will be back with part two of our breakdown of Losing My Edge by LCD Sound System. Thanks a lot. Looking forward to it. That's it for this episode of Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks to Simon Doom for our intro music, Hair of the God, and to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Tweet our mistakes and your recommendations and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Until next time, on behalf of Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you for listening. <laughs>